Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Sam Gleave-Riemann, and I produce the podcast here at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University, Montreal. Today, I am stepping into the host role, as I am very pleased to welcome our usual host, Dr. Philip Gooding, to discuss his first monograph, On the Frontiers of the Indian Ocean World, A History of Lake Tanganyika, circa 1830 to 1890, published by Cambridge University Press last year in 2022. Philip completed his PhD in history at SOAS University of London in 2017 and joined the IOWC as a postdoctoral fellow in 2018. Since then, he has published a number of chapters and articles, co-edited two edited volumes, and now produced his first monograph. Along with founding and hosting this podcast, he is also a managing editor of the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies. Philip, welcome. Thanks very much. It's nice to be on this side of uh, this side of the interview for a change. It's a little bit strange to be on this side of the interview instead of just uh, sitting in as a producer. As you know, we planned this podcast episode to answer a few questions that we didn't get to at the book launch back in uh, in November. I have at least one question from each of your two respondents, but first. For the benefit of listeners who could not attend the launch or have not yet read the book, could you please introduce us to your key arguments, methods, and the origins of the project? So um, the idea for this book, from very early stages, even in my uh, master's thesis and in my PhD proposal, was to study the history of Lake Tanganyika. From very early days, actually, I conceived Lake Tanganyika as a frontier zone. Um, and you'll note that that's actually found its way into the final monograph, which was basically published 11 years after the beginning of my master's program. So I think that's quite surprising. And I won't necessarily wouldn't necessarily recommend that to people embarking on their master's programs now and thinking that the ideas that they're going to have now are going to actually find their way into a book. What I will say is that what kind of my idea of the frontier um, kind of changed and shifted uh, over time. Originally, kind of my idea was to study Lake Tanganyika's kind of a distinct zone of interaction between several African states in the 19th century. Now, these African 19th century African states received a lot of attention from historians writing in the 1960s and 1970s, basically in the aftermath of African independence at the height of African nationalism. And very much this is a period of new forms of essentially new forms of statehood in Africa. Now, the kind of the, a, a lot of the thinking then, I think, within historical faculty was to think about the antecedents to this new wave of African nationalism. Would understanding statehood in pre-colonial, in inverted commas, Africa help us to understand current nation states? And with that in mind, there are lots of studies on um, Mirambo state uh, situated in present day West Central Tanzania on um, Msiri state in southeastern DRC, uh, Buganda in present-day Uganda, Nyungu uh, Yamawe state in present-day southwestern Tanzania. As you may have gathered from that kind of very sketchy geography I was giving you there, Lake Tanganyika doesn't get studied in this period, or not on its own right. It does fleet into all of these um, studies of statehood, but it's very much on the edge. It's not given its own kind of historiography or analysis uh, in its own right. And I thought that was very much because of the kind of era that people were writing at that time. Now, in the interim period after the 1970s, kind of the study of pre-colonial Africa kind of went in decline. There's a lot more study focusing on the colonial period for a variety of reasons. But at the same time, another body of work kind of emerged focusing on um, borderlands. Um, and frontiers in Africa. 
and these kind of borderland studies, which actually had its origins in analyses of um, the, the United States-Mexico border. The idea that these kind of frontier areas, these borderland areas have kind of an outsized influence on what's going on at political centers. And you can kind of see, uh, if you think about kind of that example that I've just drawn on there from the US-Mexico border about how the debates about the wall, which is still ongoing, really shape political culture in Washington, D.C. So there's kind of kind of an emergent thought, and this is going kind of gain traction in African studies significantly with its own modifications. But the idea that these frontier zones, uh, these borderlands, um, have had a significant influence on states in the present uh, and, and in the recent past. So kind of my opening research question is kind of really trying to understand what happens to our understanding of 19th century statehood in Africa we center Lake Tanganyika as kind of a borderland or a frontier zone that links and also divides all these different states. That, that, I, think, I think that has some quite good theoretical grounding and that, that kind of seems quite an exciting thing to explore. The problem was I didn't actually find anything that would support anything related to that. Actually, the works done in the 1960s and 70s have done a really good job, actually, um, of actually writing about Lake Tanganyika and integrating it into this into, into its role of all these different states and actually it didn't warrant centering Lake Tanganyika in a way that kind of linked all of them in any particular way. Um, it just didn't work despite what we may know about more recent borders and, and frontiers in the, in the more recent past. But one of the things that also made me think about Lake Tanganyika in this context was also challenging conventional notions of space that always focused on political centres. And that also not just had kind of an influence on how you're trying to understand the, the 19th century between all these different states, also has current day implications as well, because Lake Tanganyika now is on the border of four nation states, that's uh, Tanzania, Burundi, DRC, uh, and Zambia. Uh, and what I really wanted to do was write a history of East Africa outside of these kind of colonial zones and try and really challenge conventional spatial frames uh, in East African history. And I know, I think most Africanists would kind of see that as kind of an animal pursuit. And I think most Africanists even do do so. But as several scholars have kind of recently reflected, these kind of spatial zones that divide it between these modern, the bounds of these modern nation states that were imposed by colonial rulers actually have shaped significantly kind of the spatial markers um, of studies of the African past. And I really wanted to go against that. And then that led me to also conversations with histories of the Indian Ocean world, which seek to do likewise, challenging all these kind of different spatial silos between East Africa, Northeast Africa, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And then I could really see a lot of the influences that have kind of shaped Indian Ocean world studies in also arriving and being very prominent on the shores of Lake Tanganyika just through my um, archival research. So what I ended up doing here is kind of really challenging spatial frames within African history on its own by challenging these colonial lines that are drawn on the map and putting that also into conversation with kind of a scholarly movement that's really taken off. Well, it really began in the in the late 70s, mid 80s, but it's really taken off in the last 20 years. That have sought to do the same, but on a much grander scale. So I think if we talk about like the uh, origins of the project, we're very much about challenging spatial frames, revising how we understand uh, a space in uh, pre-colonial African history. This kind of took on a 
much bigger, more macro approach um, when we put it into conversation with the Indian Ocean world. I think that's probably the, the, the larger contribution of the book is that we're trying to understand this zone on its own merits in ways that directly challenge um, how Europeans at the time and um, and how Eurocentric narratives now even um, might conceptualize um, the history of Lake Tanganyika and of East Africa. That's fantastic. I just want to drill down a little bit more on, on one other part. Right? This is one of the questions that I had when I was I was reading through here, specifically about methodology, because as you know, I am not an Indian Ocean World scholar originally. I come from the ancient Mediterranean, but I felt a lot of familiarity when I was reading this book because you draw on a whole diversity of sources because the, the paper archive is so sparse, just like it is for the ancient Mediterranean. I, I wonder if you could speak to this, to the archaeological research, to the climatic data that you're using. What was the methodology that you used to approach this diversity of sources and uh, what benefits do you see from, from using this sort of methodology? Yeah, sure. Yeah, as you, you alluded to it right there. Documentary sources are quite sparse for East Africa. Notor in fact, they're notoriously sparse. There are a couple of exceptions, um, particularly in relation to Buganda and a couple of traders who, uh, one particular trader who uh, wrote kind of, kind of an autobiography. But almost all the sources for um, Equatorial Eastern Africa, the inland regions, are written by, uh, all the documentary sources are written by Europeans. So not only are they sparse, because there aren't that many of them, um, in terms of archival materials where you can kind of actually create like a change over time within one distinct source, they only start in the 1870s. Then my book starts in 1830. So they're sparse, but they're also problematic. The, the, the authors have highly distorted understandings of the people's environments, climates, built environments of what they what they what they saw. That they're shaped very much by their preconceived views of East Africa, and, and, and in many ways they're about in many ways they informed imperial knowledge production. They're highly problematic. So one of the things that is always I think useful to do in these kind of studies is to find ways you can to read against the grain. And so the main kind of methodology I used for that, I suppose, were oral sources, particularly for the for the latter chapters uh, on um, structures of bondage and on the spread of Islam. But as you alluded to as well, I used um, archaeological sources for um, understanding the layout of towns, climatological sources for understanding agricultural change, agricultural production, how to inform the success of agricultural change, uh, and also anthropological sources. Um, which were conducted by anthropologists in the second half of the 20th century and early and in the last um, two decades as well. In terms of the holistic way, again, in terms of it's very similar to kind of my motivations behind how I understood late Tanganyika in space. It's about trying to challenge Eurocentric views. And while I think there is a method on its own for reading against the grain of European authored sources about Africa, you can inform this kind of methodology, at least in my view, by incorporating other sources as well. And when they're also so sparse, I don't see any logic in trying in not trying to incorporate as many alternative sources as well. In many ways, as a historian, you need all the help you can get from as many disciplines as possible. And as I, and I kind of write on the blurb, it says this is the first interdisciplinary history of, of Lake Tanganyika. Well, yeah, and I think that just comes down to the point of to make a history that really challenges Eurocentric framings, not just in terms of space, but in terms of concepts, you need to incorporate other um, sources and methodologies other than just kind of documentary history, because otherwise it's very easy to get caught up in, I suppose, 
the kind of the document the narratives that are held within the documentary archives um so that's kind of the logic behind using as many i suppose alternative or non-traditional inverted commas historical sources as possible i i'm just going to keep going on this topic for a second because i i think that the methodologies that you have here are very interesting you mentioned just now that in the second half of the book, you're relying quite heavily on oral histories. But in the first half of the book, you have three chapters in that section that each have a very clear theme and each have a very clear uh, methodology associated with that theme. So I'm thinking that you talk about climate data when you talk about agriculture, archaeology and architecture in the built environment, when you talk about the urban developments around the lake, and then uh, anthropological methodology when you discuss spirituality. Do you think that there is a necessary relationship between these methodologies and these data sets and the themes that you talked to? Uh, were there other ways that you wanted to integrate different methodologies when you talked about those other themes? You know, each of those could be a book in and of themselves. Was this an intentional choice? Was this just an accident based on the data that you had at hand? Yeah, and you're right. And this is one of the comments made by uh, Professor Elizabeth Elborn in the um uh, in the book launch itself, when she said that actually the fact that you cover so many of these themes, so that 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 they very much could be seen as a book among, book unto themselves because of all the different kind of methodologies you've seen. So you're right, and I hadn't actually thought about the books in, the book in this way, but the first three chapters all incorporate kind of a somewhat different methodology, um, or even a different discipline. Chapter chapter one is very much has a lot of archaeology. Chapter two has a lot of climatology and chapter three has a lot of anthropology and yeah and it's just because of my kind of thinking about these the, these disciplines and their relationships with those chapters were, were very much because it was these disciplines themselves spoke to the themes of those chapters um so chapter one is on the built environment and I suppose the landscape of the urban space or the emporium as, as i've called it now there's a lot just an absolute trove of research that has gone into urban histories of the Swahili coast. And that's and most of that is archaeological. And one of the threads in that um, archaeological research is on trying to understand the role of wattle and door buildings um, or mud and thatch buildings from like colonial era and up to, I suppose, the, the at least the mid-1990s, most of the archaeology of the Swahili coast focused on stone buildings. For, for a variety of reasons. One, because stone buildings were very much seen to characterize the coast in a way that made it distinct from the interior. Um, and this actually had a lot of racialized connotations that colonial rulers built on as well, which I probably don't need to get into here. Um, but the other reason is that because stone buildings are easy to find in an archaeological record. Now in the 1990s, one of the um, contributions of scholars such as um, Jeffrey Fleischer has been to study, as I said, wattle and door buildings that weren't sewn, and they've discovered many, uh, and actually kind of indicated that actually these are very prominent buildings, and the stone buildings are sometimes exceptional, and that that wattle and door has a significant influence in in the archaeology, in the architecture, uh, and the daily life of Swahili pasts. Now, if we think about that, then I was trying to think about well, let's think about the 
um, how Watland Orb has been recently been seen in the archaeological record as playing as an important role in the East African coast. How is that also? How is Watland Orb, which characterised all the buildings uh, in the inland, how how in what ways is, is the patterns of settlement patterns on the coast similar to the interior? Because you're trying to break down a boundary between um, this idea of a stone built coast and a, and a and a non-stone built inland area. So basically, when I was thinking about the, how to understand the urban spaces, it was very much trying to tap into the methodologies that other historians of East Africa, including of the coast, have also used to uh, understand these urban spaces. And that archaeology really came to the fore and that really helped. Then, I suppose, thinking about the role of climate was very much how does the East African climate, much like the rest of the Indian Ocean world, influences agricultural production in East Africa, um, including up to now, as we discussed in a recent podcast, most agriculture is rain fed, which means it's relying, it's relying on rainfall being brought by the Indian Ocean monsoon system. So what happens if that rainfall changes? And what agricultural practices took advantage of abundant rainfall? And what agricultural practices made um, the agricultural regimes more vulnerable in periods of drought? And when were these periods of drought? And kind of answering those questions, that means looking at climatological materials. Then anthropological ones for chapter three. Yeah, there's been a, a, a kind of a, a decent amount of research, particularly focusing on the southern half of the lake, on the role of the lake and of spirits uh, within the lake on everyday spiritual practices. This, These three chapters were about trying to understand the space um, around Lake Tanganyika, so both urban and rural, and also Lake Tanganyika itself and its role in daily life. And what I found in terms of other research into kind of these themes was actually historians maybe i'm making a generalization here but historians of 19th century maybe have not gone into these themes in that much depth and to actually really go further into them and to really conceptualize them as best as possible this necessitated some cross-disciplinary analysis taking some taking some inspiration from colleagues in departments in archaeology and climatology um, and anthropology to really understand them. So kind of in a roundabout way to answer your question, why these kind of three disciplines, where they come from, is very much in response to the themes of the chapters themselves to try and understand the um, space around and within Lake Tanganyika. And I, I'm not going to belabor this point, but I know you and I have talked about, well, would it be interesting if we go and look at the material culture of the agricultural shifts in this period? And there are there are other... Uh, avenues for future scholarship here. Uh, but you mentioned one of the respondents, so I guess I should get back to one of her questions. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Elborn at the book launch asked, and we didn't have a chance to discuss, uh, about Christian missionaries. So she's coming from a, a history of the British Empire in South Africa, and she was wondering about where are the Christian missionaries here? You're using missionary sources, but are they really as peripheral to the actual lived experience of the people around the lake as they come across in the book? Do locals convert? What What's the interaction like? Yeah, I really like this question from Professor Elborn. Um, because, yeah, so we've been talking about sources and different disciplines um, used in this book. And, yeah, despite using all these other sources, archaeological, climatological, anthropological, oral, the one source type that really actually goes through the whole of the book are missionary sources. So I kind of use these other disciplines to try and interpret these missionary sources, and I suppose other European authored sources as well, as best as I possibly can. 
in a way that doesn't suppose center the missionaries in that process i suppose i've almost gone and this is the, gone the essence of the question from professor elborn was have i gone so far as to erase the role of the missionaries um in the actual history because i'm really trying to read across the grain have i gone almost erase them from the history kind of unnecessarily my response to that would be no I, I haven't. And actually, the, I, I I really believe strongly, actually, the missionaries were massively peripheral to actually what was going on in terms of the longer term developments um, on um, Lake Tanganyika, at least up to 1890. There are some, I suppose, the one area where there's a little bit of change, uh, a, a little bit of contestation here, which kind of gets mentioned in Chapter 3, is kind of their role in boat building, which becomes kind of an important force as a part of Lake Tanganyika's history. But yeah, the so missionaries started arriving on, on the shores of Lake Tanganyika in 1878. And these were members of the London Missionary Society uh, and the French White Fathers. And very, they struggled massively to gain converts. The French White Fathers were probably more successful, but this was owing to their, in, to a, in a large part, in their um, strategy of, in their terms, buying the freedom of enslaved people. Now, that's a highly problematic discourse. They, they're essentially buying slaves on people. Um, they're reinforcing a slave trade. And the extent to which that they're buying their freedom is very debatable, um, considering that the, those that they did purchase were then obliged to work at the missionary and were given very, very limited freedoms. In, in addition to that, as, as I've kind of alluded to um, alluded to in another chapter, in, in chapter six, uh, I, I'm very skeptical of the extent to which the idea of uh, slavery should be applied to many of the conditions that missionaries called slavery um, in African societies uh, and in under coastal traders, Swahili and Omani traders. Well, to say white fathers, the white fathers were somewhat successful in gaining followers. The extent to which they gained real converts is another matter. The London Missionary Society basically completely failed. Uh, and actually by the mid 18, mid to late 1880s, I forget the exact date, have actually left Lake Tanganyika's shores um, to a place in uh, present day northern Zambia, which is about a, a couple of hundred kilometers actually away from the lake shore. And just because they couldn't gain converts, they they just basically unable. And this kind of is actually in contrast to other parts of East Africa. For example, the Church Missionary Society and the French White Fathers were significantly more successful at gaining converts in Buganda, in present day uh, Uganda. So it is at odds with that history. But I think the reasons for it here around Lake Tanganyika is because um, of the influence of Islam and the way that Islam just seemed was made much more compatible with existing spiritual beliefs and also the ways in which kinship and bonds focused on clientage formed between Muslim and non-Muslim non um, non populations. And this actually encouraged a lot of conversion as well. And this is also kind of about material cultures of things brought from the coast, things like um, fashions from cotton cloths, also guns as well. Um, became part of kind of a, a a vision of coastal cultures, and this was very influential uh, within on, on Lake Tanganyika's shores uh, in ways that were incompatible, I think, with what missionaries wanted when they wanted to gain converts. So, particularly the London Missionary Society, um, and to a lesser degree, and um, the White Fathers, missionaries were, were really, I think, peripheral, almost 
outside observers of what was actually going on um, around Lake Tanganyika. And actually, they, although they wanted to have significant influence of what was going on, broadly speaking, they, they failed to do so. They only gained a greater foothold and greater influence after the establishment of colonial rule. Um, in the 1890s. I, you know, I think that's all fascinating. And you mentioned Islam there. And my follow-up question was a question from the other respondent, from Dr. Khalid Madani, which was about Islam, because he pointed to a passage where you discussed the idea of an Islamic sea. And the Indian Ocean has been discussed as, as an Islamic sea. And he was wondering, what's the extent of that? What does it, Islam look like around the lake? You talk very... Um, very clearly that your oral respondents really do want to talk about Islam. That's one of the processes that they're really interested in. So, you know, what does it mean for a community if there's no mosque? Uh, is there a vernacular Islam? What about syncretism? You push back a little bit on the idea of syncretism. What does that mean? Uh, what does this Islam in this area look like? This is, again, I really, yeah, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned this, uh, that I push back on the idea of syncretism. One of the, So the syncretism is the idea that uh, I suppose that two kind of spiritual beliefs could live side by side, and that that some I suppose converts to Islam would both be Muslim, but also have an indigenous religion that they'd be side by side and not influence each other. And I'm kind of pushed back against this idea that this is what happened uh, on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. This is very much influenced by other studies, firstly in colonial East Africa, particularly by Felicitas Becker. Um, but also from the wider Indian Ocean world, I was really taken by, um, for example, Sebastian Prang's history of monsoon Islam, whereby the, the idea was that local spiritual beliefs did not exist side by side with new kind of beliefs in Islam. But actually, the ways that they understood that new converts understood Islam was very much rooted in pre-existing beliefs. And where they practiced Islam was also rooted in these pre-existing beliefs as well. Um, and also these pre-existing beliefs became modified to reconcile to their new belief in Islam. They don't live side by side, but actually they're very much integrated with each other. And they part become a broader a religious practice that can broadly be understood as Islamic. And this is very much how I kind of see it going on here. Now, of course, kind of in, I suppose, how I suppose we traditionally understand Islam, we're going to think about the five pillars of Islam. We're going to think about mosques. Now, I don't, I think in this kind of practice on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, these new converts, as well as Muslim traders coming from the coast, we don't have a mosque, don't so much reinterpret Islam, but adapt Islamic practice to their local context. This local context doesn't have a mosque, um, but this local context does have widespread belief in spirits in the lake, which are not incompatible. In fact, they become very compatible with Islamic beliefs in jinns. So the idea of putting it on the this idea of an Islamic sea was the fact that this belief in spirits in the lake, um, and as this becomes intertwined with a local understanding of Islam, this kind of really becomes pervasive over the entire lake. And I kind of, this is kind of me trying to put the conversation of Lake Tanganyika into broader conversation with the scholarship of the Indian Ocean world. And the Indian Ocean itself has been understood as an Islamic sea. Um, most notably, I think, in Edward Alper's Indian Ocean in World History, published just over a decade ago. And in this kind of Islamic sea, and as I mentioned, Prang's um, book really refers to this as well, that Islam takes diverse forms over time and over space. And I think this is kind of really this conception of Lake Tanganyika as an Islamic sea kind of emphasized that that Islam had kind of a diversity of forms around Lake Tanganyika, influenced by Islamic practice on the East African coast, but also taking on distinctly local components um, as well. And rather than seeing it as kind of 
syncretic as somehow distinct belief systems. I want to put it in conversation with these broader understanding of a diversity of Islam, which kind of transcends uh, recent studies into the Indian Ocean. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. I think we're going to ask one more question, and this is another one. I'm going to kind of mix some of my questions with one of the questions from Elizabeth from the from the launch before we get to our our usual final question. And Elizabeth's question was about continuity and change, and what's that narrative stretch in in the book, especially when it regards to uh, the process of the colonialism. And I was thinking about this when I was reading through the book after the launch, especially when I came to your really thoughtful epilogue, where you bring forward the 1888 Abushiri rebellion and use that to illustrate connections between the Indian Ocean coast and uh, Lake Tanganyika itself. Can you speak a little bit to this idea of continuity and change? How does the Abashiri revolt illustrate this sense that the lake and the, the ocean are connected and uh, this transition between uh, colonial and non-colonial periods in the 19th century? Thanks, yeah. And thanks for the, referring to the epilogue as well. It's the one, obviously, the shortest chapter in the book. Um, it's an epilogue. It's not really a chapter. Um, but I think it's the one that I'm... It's both the one that I was the most unsure about when I sent it off in the original manuscript, also the one that I thought that if this is acceptable, was possibly the most impactful, or at least close to the most impactful um, of the whole book. And this is the idea, kind of building on um, Jonathan Glassman's seminal book, Feast and Riot, published in the mid-1990s, which really was challenging um, understandings of, as you refer to, continuity uh, and change around the end of the 1880s and early 1890s. Up to the publication of Jonathan Glassman's book, the Abushiri Revolt, uh, which began as um, a series of uh, riots uh, in coastal towns such as Bagamoyo and Pangani, and then later turned into a wider revolt um, of Omani and Swahili planters. Up to um, Glassman's book, it's kind of seen as a revolt against the uh, German incursions uh, on the coast. This is the beginning of basically when the Germans are really laying claim to mainland East Africa and his revolt against that. Glassman's kind of contention was actually, no, these revolts and particularly the outbreak, the riots, are actually tied to longer term conflicts uh, and tensions that have been born out of changes within coastal society dating from at least uh, 1856, which is, I think, is the, the, the start date um, of his book. My kind of contribution to that was actually to kind of understand that the rioters um, themselves, many of them came from inland regions. And the writers were people who were largely disenfranchised at the coast. They were many coming from the interior. This meant that coastal populations, broadly speaking, referred to them as uh, un-Islamic, as, um, as of slave stock. Now, as I argue in the book, significantly, the, the, one of the main threads about the, the book, particularly in the latter two chapters, is that these people despite being regarded of slave stock by people living at the coast and also regarded as enslaved by European missionaries, didn't see themselves as enslaved and neither did their so-called masters. They didn't see them as enslaved. They saw them as somewhere on, on a continuum, uh, more likely as clients or for um, many women uh, as, as kin to some degree. And also many of them had converted to Islam and had participated in this diversification of Islamic forms around Lake Tanganyika. So kind of my contribution here was kind of see that there's this long term changes happening within cultural milieu at the coast uh, and in the interior. And they are going kind of hand in hand. And this creates kind of long term tensions which explode dramatically 
on the East African coast. So kind of in kind of this idea of continuity and change, as I think there is a great deal of change, particularly cultural change, uh, and in terms of structures of bondage as well, around, around Lake Tanganyika, which really inform um, our understanding um, of the Abyshiri revolt. And this kind of challenges and adds more to Glassman's core argument, was that 1888, the revolt, the, the riots followed by the revolt don't necessarily indicate a sharp rupture with the beginning of colonial rule, but rather there is a long-term unfolding tension which colonial rulers insert themselves into, unknowingly, I think, for the most part, uh, and become imbricated in as they begin to establish colonial rule. The broad thread here about continuity and change, I think, is that the history that I'm trying to write here has longer-term implications in terms of how we understand the imposition of colonial rule from the 1890s. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to think about just a sharp rupture at this point. I think if you focus on the sharp rupture, you kind of attribute way too much influence to the Europeans and it's kind of a kind of a Eurocentric narrative. Glassman began that process um, in terms of just looking at the coast and I've kind of given it a bigger spatial framework also thinking about the interior and the interior's influence at the coast as well. I think that's kind of how I'm trying to think about it at least. And I think that's a really fantastic answer. So then, of course, we get to finish and you get to answer the question that you always ask. What is coming next? What can we expect to see from you in uh, the near to midterm? OK, so there's a few things going on, but to draw attention to or draw listeners attention to one, the big project is a climate history um, of East Africa or equatorial Eastern Africa uh, from about 1750 to around 1900. Uh, and the idea with this uh, history is to use, again, climatological methods, um, which are kind of explored in chapter two of the book and I've got much more heavily into now, uh, not just using existing climatological sources, but actually trying to make my own myself. Or oh, actually, 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 that's overstating what I'm doing here in collaboration with climatologists um, that, that, that are actually attempting to do this. Uh, and the idea is essentially, it's, it's definitely a reflection on the current moment, which puts uh, the climate crisis uh, and the role of climate in the present and future, but also increasingly also in the past, that the climate does have a role, um, although not, but also pushing it back against old school, largely discredited uh, deterministic roles as well. The idea here is to, I'm trying to gradually use a mixture of historical and climatological methods to reconstruct rainfall variability uh, in East Africa from about 1750 to 1900 and then to use that as a new archive and with which to interpret East African history and that in that reinterpretation will focus on the role of climatic uh, and environmental changes in that context so it's an environmental history that takes seriously the role of climate um, and to do that it necessitates actually understanding climate in the first place uh, and that's where I'm currently at the moment. Hopefully there'll be uh, a manuscript under review within the next six weeks that actually reconstructs, that actually use some pretty novel interdisciplinary methods for um, actually reconstructing past climatic conditions uh, in East Africa. This is absolutely integral for the history of East Africa, but it should also be said, and I think this is one of the important things as well. So I think this has important present day implications as well. One of the things that climatologists are very concerned with um, is modeling climate uh, and how it and how it is being and how it is being affected currently and trying to understand how that might impact climate systems uh, in the future 
one of the ways to improve your way of doing this is to lengthen your understanding in terms of time, uh, how far back our knowledge of um, climate variability and change actually goes in, in the world. At the moment, as far as I'm aware, in terms of actual rain gauge data for East Africa, there's very little for pre-1900. Um, so what this kind of project is also doing is adding to climatological knowledge of past conditions in East Africa, which will basically improve the models on which projections for future climates are made. That's the hope anyway. As I said, um, there should be a manuscript under review in the next little while. And if that gets through, we'll see. Uh, then we have the makings of a new climate archive for East Africa, which will be then the basis of another book. But we'll see. We will see. I, I know uh, from being around the centre, I see the sausage getting made and it's quite an exciting <laughs> sausage. So our, our listeners should look up for that. Thank you, Philip, for coming on the show and taking the time this morning to uh, to talk us through your book a little bit more. Thank you to the listeners for streaming and downloading the podcast. You've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 